Hello, I'm Amanda Decadney, and you're listening to The Conversation, a show where I talk to the people I find most inspiring about the issues and life experiences that really matter. This week on The Conversation, I am speaking to certified relationship expert and teacher, Jillian Tarecki. The reason I'm speaking to Jillian is because a few weeks ago, I posted something on social media asking you to share with me if you had ever abandoned yourself to be in a relationship. And thousands of people responded, thousands of people, sharing their story on how they had abandoned themselves in some way, shape, or form in order to be in a relationship. And so I thought, let's speak to someone who can actually speak to this and hopefully share some insights, some tools, some ways to heal, some alternate ways to be in a healthy relationship because I guess so many of us need that guidance. So I found this conversation really interesting. I hope you do too. Thank you for taking the time to chat. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. I appreciate it. So Jillian, you are a certified relationship expert and teacher which is a great job description. (laughs) I'm sure once people find out what you do, they want to talk to you nonstop because everyone has relationship issues. It's everyone. Everyone. No one gets the free pass on that one. Nobody. I know. Literally nobody. That's that comforting (laughs) thing. And it's also the thing that I'm sure keeps you incredibly busy. Yep. Never shortage of issues. It's where the rubber meets the road and you get to see how recovered you really are or are not. That's spot on. Exactly. So I would love to get some context from you of how you came to choose this role in life (laughs) or did it choose you? It's funny that you posed the question that way. It did choose me. Um, I taught yoga for almost 20 years. And I was wanting something more, but I had no idea what that was. Around eight-ish years ago, I, I met someone and we did get married. And although the relationship leading up to the marriage was good, there were red flags that I completely ignored. And the marriage was very, very challenging. And did it shift after you got married? I tell people all the time because there's a lot of people, especially young women, who think that marriage is what's going to solve all the problems. And it's not true. It's actually what makes all the problems magnify. (laughs) So as someone who's been married for almost 20 years, I wholeheartedly agree with you. Yeah. And it's not to deter people from getting married. It's just about figure out your stuff. Don't think the marriage is a guarantee that now you'll never be left or you'll never be hurt or you'll never go through a breakup again. It's not the certainty that people think it is. And I'm all for it. I'm all for it. Do you want to do it? I'm all, I'm all for it. So I'm certainly not against it, but I, it does, it does, I think, need to be demystified quite a bit. So got married. And of course, you know, when I look back, there was just so many things that I thought I knew about relationship and I thought I knew about myself that I absolutely did not know. And even know when I got married, I was 38. 
you know, I thought I was like, oh, I'm getting married later in life. Like, this is this is good. I'm so much more mature. And when I look back, I'm like, oh, my God, I just didn't know. And it's a baby. And the marriage was incredibly difficult and painful, mostly entirely due to the fact that these were two people who didn't know how to communicate mm. on a really profound and deep level in a way that we're not taught in school. And if we weren't taught by our parents, either by modeling or directly, we're lost. Which most and, people aren't. Uh, most, I mean, and that's a huge majority. Yeah. And there was a trauma bond that I didn't even know any of that psychology back then. Anyways, I thought things were fine. But then my mom was diagnosed with lung cancer. So I had the end of my marriage and it ended really, really abruptly and was done very, very inappropriately. And that same day, I found out that my mom had three more months to live and I had a miscarriage, like all in one day. Yeah. So, yeah. Epic so stresses, just, like, one on top of the other. One on top of the other. So I went into crisis. It was just a total crisis. And what did that look like and, for you? Good question. Extreme anxiety, extreme depression. I cried myself to sleep, I think, every day for a year. And when I finally stopped crying, I was like, oh, God. Because a good cry feels great. But wow, is it exhausting when it's every day for a year, you know? How did you function in that year, though? Yeah, so I functioned by relying on my two older sisters. I functioned by going to therapy twice a week. I functioned by leaning on my friends. I functioned through teaching yoga because if I had to give to someone else, I couldn't think about myself or my life. Sure. And I functioned through the help of Tony Robbins. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's how I did it. And it was really Tony's work that got me out of bed every day, including my, I have a dog. So that got me out of bed. I also had a coach who I hired and she was the one who introduced me to Tony's work and then suggested that I become a coach. So it was just looking back, there was so much support that I have and I needed it because I think whenever you go through a crisis, you need a lot of support. That's key yeah. is to find a support system, whatever that looks like for you. And mm -hmm. it can take many shapes and forms, knowing those things that keep you somewhat intact so that you can literally function and not drop off the edge is exactly. crucial. I wanted to talk to you because recently I posed a question to my community about whether anyone had abandoned themselves for a relationship. And if so, what was the cost? Great question. And <laughs> the amount of people who acknowledge in very vulnerable terms that they had in fact done that. I have mm -hmm. done that many times. Um, most people I know have done that. And unfortunately, we're, we're raised to think that's what we're supposed to do. From a very young age, we're told your life doesn't start until you meet a partner and then you dedicate your life to serving that partnership. So many people are still struggling with how to reclaim themselves and how to come back to themselves. And, and ultimately, how do you change that innate programming that is within you that keeps you seeking the one motherfucker in the room who is not interested in you because that feels like love? We're talking about very 
basic primal programming that comes from our Mm -hmm. first early attachment relationships, which very few people had the healthy ones. So when people come to you, are they generally in a crisis? Or what point do people come to you and say, I need help? Okay, so part of the reason, not the whole reason, but part of the reason why it was, you know, 99 or 98% of the responses were women saying that they abandoned themselves. Yes, a huge part of programming, and I'll dive into that. But another part that people don't recognize as much is that women tend to be harder on themselves than men are. And so when they do something that they perceive as self-abandonment, they will ruminate on that and feel a lot of shame because of that. Generally speaking, more than men, women tend to be very, very hard on themselves. Men might be harder on themselves in the workforce, but generally speaking, women are a lot harder on themselves when it comes to relationships. And that's all relationship. That's romantic relationship. That's that's motherhood. That's sisterhood. All of it. So I just wanted to mention that first because so many women who I speak to, and and this goes to my personal experience, will think I abandoned myself. Well, I don't know. Did you? Yeah, maybe you did. But you know, think about that. You know, there there was some maybe at some point very understandable and clear logic at the time that supported you maybe not listening to yourself, maybe because you were giving the messaging, you must follow your heart, right? So you were just doing what you knew, what you thought, what you knew and what felt actually right at the time. It can be very confusing when your intuition is telling you, okay, this isn't right. I'm not being treated well. Your intuition versus your programming and your conditioning. Oh, I should accept this. It's okay. Like, you don't want to rock the boat. So I, I just kind of want to say that in general, that um, what adds fuel to the fire unnecessarily is women feeling so ashamed of abandoning themselves. And I'd rather them take a look at, you know, okay, well, why would you make that decision? What's the conditioning that led you there? You know, where perhaps is there a deficit in your self-worth or where is there need to be some revising of your belief system so that you don't do that anymore? Looking and the at the root. Why, the root. What's, yeah, the root. Exactly. And, and also the reality is, is that we all mess up when it comes to relationship. So there are a lot of instances where you can say, I abandoned myself, but you could also replace that with, I was stupid and just, I was young and dumb, you know, well, you're talking about, you're talking about the self-compassion piece, which is really crucial. And for me, that has been a key part of my recovery and my journey is, and it's kind of the missing piece, you know, is that we can have often have compassion for a lot of other people, but still be brutal on ourselves. And I think until you can free yourself from the vice grip of self-judgment, it's really hard to heal. And it's really hard to change because you're holding yourself in such low self-esteem that you have to free yourself up to be able to change and take different action and look at what is underneath all of this. So you're talking about self-compassion, which is crucial. It's crucial. It's also crucial because ultimately we want to be more objective 
with ourselves as well. Mm. So in other words, we want to be able to say, wow, like I really messed up there and be able to show ourselves compassion so that then we're actually able to be accountable for the things that we've done that have harmed ourselves and have harmed others. You know, that's just dysfunctional. And it's a tight balancing act because there's some people who are so self-consumed, honestly, with themselves. You know, I've been that too, so self-consumed with our perfectionism or what we think we should do, all the shoulds that we can't even see past it to be like, okay, let's just get real with ourselves. What's not working? You know, like where can we be kinder to ourselves and where can we actually stop being less manipulative? So I think ultimately the goal, um, compassion is a huge part of it, but ultimately we want to be as, try to be as objective with ourselves as we possibly can so that we can move forward, you know? And so why do some women choose the most unavailable partner in the room? Well, usually because it's that unavailable person, um, that person is the person we're most sexually drawn to. So sexual attraction If you have a pattern of being attracted to the wrong person, sexual attraction can be really dangerous for some people. It's like you have to rewire what you're attracted to or who you're attracted to. Yeah, for many years, I basically knew that if I was sexually attracted to someone, I had to stay away from them because my picker was broken. Like how I chose people was busted. And it was really hard to retrain myself to actually understand that just because I didn't have this insane sexual attraction to someone, it didn't mean that there was no possibility for a relationship there. It just meant that it wasn't coming from that old energy, that that old energy gave me a certain outcome. But it took a long time. I was just like, this doesn't feel right because it wasn't what I was used to. It's, It's really retraining yourself. Absolutely. And and you just beautifully demonstrated what it is to be objective with oneself. You know, like, oh, my picker is broken. Like, I've got to do something about this. And that's really empowering, you know, and that's, it takes time to get to that. You know, first, there's a lot of (laughs) self-hatred and confusion. Then you have to show yourself compassion. And then you have to be like, okay, now I'm ready to, you know, put my big girl pants on and, and figure this out. And, and it's, a, it's a process. So when clients come to me, they're all at different stages of that, you know? And I work with men too. So it's all sorts of stuff because self-worth is a big one. Interesting. Do you see pa- patterns that are gender specific? Yeah, self-worth. Look, there's plenty of men out there who struggle with their self-worth. But this is just my experience with my clientele. And with friendships and family and just however long I've been living and relating to people, women in general struggle so much more with their self-worth. And what we've been programmed to believe is that we get our worth through a relationship or through a partner, as opposed to going into the relationship with a baseline healthy self-esteem where we don't actually believe that our worthiness is dependent on how this person sees us. And that is something that is incredibly gender specific. Which is not a surprise Mm -hmm. and also makes me sad. And also understanding that 
the number one commodity in the world for women is how desirable they are. That is just the truth. We live in a culture Mm -hmm. that prioritizes how desirable you are and ties that to your value above how much self-worth you have, how much self-compassion you have, how grateful you are, how much, how often you're of service. It is not about the inside. It's no surprise to me that we've got an entire gender who have this belief system. So ultimately what we're talking about though, is that you have to be at a certain place of willingness and you have to have kind of experienced enough destruction to be at the point where you're willing to say, fuck, I need help. This is not going good. I am in pain. I need to be willing to try something different. So I'm assuming most people come to you when they're in a crisis. Yeah, I get people in different stages. Like they just went through a breakup or they just started seeing someone new or they're struggling with the partner that they have. And it's interesting because those are all different conundrums, mm-hmm. you know, where you are in what stage you're at in, in relationship. Do you think that there is such a thing as an ideal match? That's a really good question. Um, do I think there's an ideal match? No, I don't. I think that the word ideal, I struggle with that in general because often what we're doing is projecting our ideals onto people that we meet all the time. And parents do that to their children all the time. They project their ideals of who that child should be or who that child should date all the time. And so that's the subconscious thing that we do. And I think that there are better matches. And I think there's some pretty bad matches. And I think that there are different degrees of matches. But like I said, There's no jackpot in another person. I think that when you're in a relationship with someone and you're trying to decide, is this person the one? Or you're trying to discover it. You know, are they the one? Are they the one? Well, at some point you have to decide if they are not. And it's not so much of a discovery. It's just like, know yourself and you'll know what's really good for you and what's really bad for you. And by the way, you're not going to get everything you want in a partner. So you better figure out what's really important to you and what you can tolerate. And when you get bored in your relationship, because you will, the first thing you have to do is ask yourself, how am I being boring? People think, I'll find that ideal person and all my problems will go away. Or I'll find that ideal ideal person and I'll feel all this great emotion all the time. It's like, well, yes, in the beginning, but then you have on you to generate that positive emotion between the two of you. Like you have to, you have to do that together. It's, it's teamwork. So no, I don't think there's an ideal match, but I think there's some pretty bad matches. Well, let's talk a little bit about attachment styles because sure. I think that they hold such a key to, to really understanding if someone is, if initially you're a good match. Because if you are someone, first of all, I never met anyone who has a secure attachment style. Have you? Um, See, you're pausing. You're pausing. That was a long pause, Jillian. No, because I had to think about that. I had to think about that because I think, because the reason, and this is just sort of where I struggle with attachment theory in general, is that 
anyone can become avoidant and anyone can become anxious given the, the right circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. But there are people who are pathologically anxious and pathologically avoidant. And I think that that's where the attachment theory works so well, because it's like those people, no matter what circumstance they're in, that's the pattern that they go in. So I think a securely attached person is someone who has the capacity to go into anxiety or avoidance, but generally feel quite um, secure in their relationships. I do know a, a few people. I had to think about that, but I do. Um, who, who I would never say, oh, they're avoidant or they're or they're anxious at all. So you've never met anyone securely attached. No, no, I haven't. I mean, mm. to be honest, I would never have been attracted to someone who was securely attached. I probably would have been repulsed by them. No. Do you have friends who are securely attached? Um, maybe one couple who are both on their second marriage. But okay. I don't have a lot of examples of healthy, securely attached marriages to look to. I mean, I'm okay. married for 20 years. I've been with, with my husband since he was 21 and I was 28. So well, he's about to turn 41 and I've been with him his entire adult life. On paper, this was a terrible match, really mm -hmm. terrible. But due to a lot of work and I mean, a lot of work and ongoing, you know, we could have grown mm -hmm. apart many times as he was growing or I was growing and we did go in different directions and then we come back together. And for us, I, we have to keep redefining what our marriage is. I have to keep saying oh, all the time. Oh, OK. I kind of feel like 10 year chunks work for me personally, where <laughs> 10 years, I'm doing like a big review going, okay, I've grown a lot. What's important to me today? What's my values? What have I changed my point of view on? What needs of mine have changed? Which ones have dissipated and which ones are still really important to me? And go, how does this fit in my marriage today? And also understanding that I don't have the right to change someone else. I can say, hey, you know what? This used to be really important to me, but actually it doesn't work for me anymore. One of the the biggest things is inability to communicate with one another. And you think, how can that be such a big issue? But for sure, in my relationship, finding a common language that you understand me and I understand you and we aren't triggering each other and reacting all over the place and projecting and mm -hmm. transferring and, you know, that is the work. Because without the communication tools, you can't resolve anything. It's absolutely true. And, and, and it's also true. Yeah, I tell people all the time, you know, if you're in a marriage or long term, very long term relationship, you're going to have many marriages inside of one marriage. That is so true. Many. And that scares many people because they want it to stay yes, the same. Because people are addicted to certainty and they're very afraid of change in a relationship. And it's very triggering. But you're going to have many, many marriages, and the ones that last, or the are the are the couples who last, are really the ones who are able to adapt to that reality. But it is really uncomfortable, I will say. Sure, <laughs> it really course, is. But you do it. But you do it. Well, if you want the relationship and you value what you've created together and the bond That's you right. have and the life that you have then you're willing to do the work. Both people have to be willing to do the work. Absolutely. I'm kind of curious, when people come to you, do you have them 
do a kind of assessment of where they are at in their life, because ultimately all of the work has to be done with yourself first. Yeah, everything is about the relationship to self. Everything. That's the good news and the bad news. Yeah. (laughs) Is that it is all on you, sister. It's all, it really is. It's the good news and the bad news and it is all on, on us. It's all about that. It's how to communicate, figuring out what's blocking you from being vulnerable, figure out what's blocking a person from being honest to the games that we play, to how we relate to ourselves, how we talk to ourselves. And then, you know, very, very concrete skills. Most women don't understand men and most men don't understand women. A relationship's hard enough when it's the same gender, but when it's two different genders that are that are very different in terms of how they think and operate. So a lot of that is also like me teaching them just about um, the psychology behind what their partner might need that they're missing. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting you say that because I have boy-girl twins and I have been able to <laughs> see firsthand just they had the same pregnancy. They're in the same family. They're in the same home, the same environment, yeah. same meals, same everything. And yet mm-hmm. the difference in in approach, perspective and needs based on gender is astronomical. And I've been yeah. able to see and just their developmental stages that happen at very different times as well, where I've gone, oh, my God, yeah. how is it possible that different genders can cohabit? You know, because we really are almost like different species. I would not be surprised if we did MRIs of the brains and they were completely different in places. Oh, there's been lots of MRIs and there are differences for sure in terms of thinking and awareness. Yeah, certainly one of the things that I had to learn about men was that they they often use sexual expression as a way to show love and as a way to receive love. And for me, I was always like, that's the last thing. Like, it's not a problem getting laid in the world, but getting, receiving and giving love is difficult to find. So I don't necessarily want that in sex, you know, but actually to dismiss that was dismissing a very integral part of the male approach. And I had to really learn that and not feel devalued by it, but also feel like, oh no, this is your one of the ways that you express love and receive love. Very different. Yes. And feel connected. And very feel different. connected. Yeah. And to feel validated. Exactly. So when people come to you and, okay, when people come to you and you are assessing that this is a really unhealthy relationship, that you don't know how this is going to work in a positive way, given what the yeah. factual situation is. Have you ever seen one of those turn around? I have seen great things happen with friends where things were unhealthy or there was infidelity and they really turned things around. It really just depends on the severity of the dysfunction. I've had some couples come to me that have been married for a very, very long time, just like you and your husband. And those issues are the same thing. It's the growing pains and the lack of awareness that what they're really being called to do is go to the next chapter of their marriage, start a new marriage. And it's all that discomfort. But the people I've seen who have been in really unhealthy situations, it's the, the relationship in its infancy. It's the first year or a year and a half, and there's so much dysfunction. And those are ones that I don't typically see turn around. And do you ever say, 
in all honesty, I don't know how this is going to work. Or do you have to? I'm brutally honest. And I've, I've had some clients where I've said, you know, um, and this doesn't happen often, but it has happened where I say, where they want to continue to work with me, but they want to continue to work with me to help them stay in this relationship that's not good. That's actually really bad for them. Mm. And I've literally said, no, I won't, I won't help you stay in this relationship. When you're ready to leave it and do the work, I'll be here for you. So what would you say are the kind of key criteria for a relationship being successful? If you had to pick mm-hmm. kind of five qualities for, you know, both partners to have, what would you yeah. say those would be? I think that there has to be somewhat of a, a compatibility of nature. Mm. So it's not that an introvert and an extrovert can't make a marriage work. I've seen it, you know, but I think most people are going to have an easier time making a, a relationship really last if their natures are somewhat similar. So if there's one person who just never wants to leave the house and the other person is all about adventure, that's going to be difficult long term. And even if the relationship lasts, it may not be thriving. So I think nature has to be in alignment. And also stage of life, right? Because, you know, yes. when my husband was 22, he was the guy out in the bar till four in the morning. And I was already 10 years sober at that point. So that was not a good time for me, right? But no. but once we had kids when he was 24, those bar days ended. Then there was more compatibility. I'm glad you mentioned that because a lot of people ask me like, is age just a number? Like, does an age difference matter? And I think it does. And that's not, I see young women all the time. They're young. They've never been married. They want babies. And yet they fall in love with the 55-year-old divorced guy who has like teenage kids. And I'm like, this matters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're two very different stages of your life. It's mm-hmm. like, this is going to be challenging. So life stage matters. Also, I think what's critical for a a relationship to be successful is that each person has to have some sort of personal development or spiritual practice of some sort. They have to work on themselves. They have to have rituals and routines and support that helps them manage their emotions better, that helps them be more mature that whether it's working out or taking care of their bodies, all, all of the above. So people so really one person need to take isn't care raising of the other person. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I don't want to be your mom. Yeah. Yeah, I don't exactly. want to do the job your mom did not do. You do that job. Okay, so that's so critical. And that's actually unconsciously, because we started this conversation, which is like, why are we attracted to the wrong person or the, our conditioning? We are, the harder our upbringing is, the more we will, on an unconscious level, seek out partners to fulfill the job that our, one, at least one of our parents never did. And that rarely works, you know? And I mean, you're in a relationship and the healthiest relationship, like we need nurturing and we're going to want nurturing from our partner. I mean, Anyone who's in a relationship with a man is going to want sometimes their man to be dad, sometimes. And anyone who's in a relationship with a woman is going to sometimes want, you know, 
that woman to be mom. To be nurturing and, and be a caretaker. Yeah. I cared yeah. for. Yeah. And so to say that like you should never expect that is ridiculous. But it then can't be the primary the role. No, no, absolutely not. Yeah. It's a disaster. And that yeah. happens. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so life stage, compatibility, self-reflection, personal growth, anything else? Um, skill. Mm. Skill. So you get educated in, in communication. You have to get educated sexually. In other words, you have to understand what turns your partner on and try to get on board with that and try to find some alignment there. You have to have some skill in terms of how to be more selfless. Because, you know, really the the thing that's the biggest malignancy in, in a relationship is selfishness. And it's tough because it's it's often the people who are the least selfish who can't even imagine themselves ever, you know, ever identifying with the idea of being selfish. But we can be very selfish. And well, that's, that's the hardest thing. There is a lot of confusion around centering the self and yeah. being selfish. And what I have seen is a lot of people, and I say a lot because I see it a lot, yeah. using the loophole of centering the self to behave in very selfish ways, where you get yeah. people who are like, oh, no, um, this is self-care and you've crossed my boundary because you didn't use the when I, when you, I feel statement and I feel blamed. <laughs> and, you know, there is a lot of that going on and you go, There's wow, you're using your wokeness as a really great excuse to maintain your self-obsession because now your yes. self-obsession is tipped into your wokeness. And so yeah. who can criticize someone for working on themselves, but really you're just as self-obsessed as you were six years ago when you were obsessed with yourself in this regard or whatever it was. Yeah, oh, abso absolutely. It's called, I mean, it's called spiritual bypassing. We're in the world of social media, and this is both a great thing and a scary thing, is that we are in a way so much more aware. And I think that people now more than ever are interested in exploring their trauma and their past and how that affects their present and their future. And so that's a beautiful thing. The pitfall, just to, to echo your point, what happens is that there's a lot of pop psychology BS out there. And then people are diagnosing themselves, diagnosing others. And then, like you said, it's like, okay, don't cross my boundaries. This is all about self. And that's not what makes a relationship work. And then there are also a lot of people who are saying, you know, or the victim mentality is like, you know, I'm a pleaser. And so I'm just always pleasing. So I'm always taking advantage of. Well, no, the reality is that every time you please, you're actually manipulating. Yeah, and to feel valued. Because you're trying to get love. Yeah. yeah. It's about interdependence, right? Like some people need to figure out how they're going to be more independent in a relationship. And some people need to figure out how they can be more dependent in a relationship. And love and life will always be a blending of I need you and I need me. And I think that one of the negotiations or like nonverbal negotiations and conundrums of a relationship is how much am I giving of myself and how much do I have to separate myself? And I think it's 
always a conundrum for people, but ultimately we're so guarded and there's so much talk out there about boundaries, rightfully so for some people, but it gets misinterpreted and then people are not actually opening up their hearts to each other and being vulnerable and being real with each other because they're so afraid and have all that spiritual bypass. So yeah, it's a shame. And it, that's never what's going to actually make a relationship work. Well, I'm, I'm so pleased we're talking about this because I have experienced people whose boundaries have created brick walls around them. They are so boundaried <laughs> that it has kept everyone away from them because God forbid you go too close to that boundary. So, uh-huh. yeah. you know, there's a real danger where you're just like, yeah. okay, you're an island with your boundaries. Yeah, yeah, you're just exactly. You know, the thing about boundaries that are walls or boundaries that are so porous, it's all fear. I mean, it's all, it's all fear. I mean, if anyone who builds a wall around them is afraid to get close to someone, it's like the pendulum. It's, let's say you've had no boundaries and then you learn boundaries and all of a sudden you have walls. And then it's like, there's consequences for both. It's funny. The jury's still out with me in terms of the boundary conversation, because there's obviously a need for it. There are definitely people out there who very much struggle with saying no when they, when they want to say no. And that can be really big. I feel and like it's a tool that, that's been misused a lot, though. A misunderstood. Yeah, and misunderstood because people think, oh, I have to have really good boundaries to protect myself. But more often than not, the boundaries that I see that people need to work on is how they cross other people's boundaries. Mm. So usually when someone has poor boundaries, it's not just about allowing others to cross theirs, but they're crossing everyone else's all the time. So I have worked with people like that who they're pleasing everyone, but then when it suits them, they're not respecting anyone else's boundaries. And they just weren't taught that growing up. You're never going to have as fulfilling of a relationship as you possibly can if you're constantly guarding your heart. Okay, so let's talk about that. You're never going to have a fulf- as a fulfilling relationship as you want if you're constantly guarding your heart. So what we're saying is yeah. that the invitation for radical vulnerability, right, which means allowing yourself, your most broken parts to be seen and to be known, that takes a lot of courage to do and If both partners are able to do that, why does that result in a more meaningful, connected, loving relationship? Okay. So vulnerability, yes, you're sharing what pains you and you're definitely sharing what scares you. But vulnerability doesn't always have to take place in a sort of serious conversation. We can practice being vulnerable in the day-to-day. Like every time we can say, oh, I really like it when you hold my hand. Or you could say, every time you hold my hand, I feel really safe. Mm, God, I'm feeling one, so uncomfortable hearing you say this. Yeah. Why? Why? It makes me feel so uncomfortable. <laughs> Oof. 
Why? <gasps> Fascinating. Okay. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that you have to say that all the time, but you said, why does that make for a good relationship? Well, a relationship, it's not um, static. It's very dynamic. So in relationship, you're always going through harmony, disharmony, repair, and harmony, disharmony, repair. And of course, we want to be in harmony more than we are in disharmony. But more than that, we really want repair to be on point. And when people are vulnerable with each other, saying like, oh, I feel really safe when you hold my hand like that, that really leads to more repair because then the other person is like, wow, every time I hold her hand, like that's what, that's what that means to her. Like I had no idea. She feels safe. That's great. I want to make her feel safe. I'm going to hold her hand more. If you Um, have a healthy partner, you might have a partner who does not respond in that way and doesn't take that cue as John Gottman would call it a bid. Um, a bid, exactly. You right. know, so and they so might that's completely the pers- miss it. Yeah, and that's the person, if, you know, they're sitting with me, then I'm like, I literally say, you're an idiot. You're missing, like, the most important thing here. Uh-huh. So, but but yeah. what is it about that vulnerable exchange? What makes it vulnerable? Why, does that, why is that exchange uh, vulnerable? Well, because, first of all, it's saying, whenever you're using the word safe, you're describing a state in which I like it when you hold my hand. It's not that that's a false statement, but is it really the truth? Do you really like it when they hold your hand or does it make you feel something? And the vulnerable, even if it's not safe, maybe it's like, oh, it feels so yummy when you, whatever it is. But when you can actually attach an emotion and a feeling to something, then you're being vulnerable. Oh, I like that. Okay, well then why? well, I like it when they hold my hand because it makes me feel safe. Or I like it when they hold my hand because it makes me feel like they're present with me or they're interested in me or that we're connected or that we're more like a couple. Or I just love physical touch because physical touch makes me feel like I'm loved. For one person, that might not be a particularly vulnerable thing to say. But for someone who is really afraid of abandonment, or really afraid of wearing their heart in their sleeve or has a tendency to kind of hold their cards close to their chest or they're feeling a little insecure, that could be really vulnerable. So it depends on who's saying it. Because some people don't feel as vulnerable as others. What's going to feel really vulnerable for you is not necessarily what's going to feel very vulnerable for me. But But I guess what I'm saying is that why is vulnerability a deepening of connection. Why does vulnerability invite a deepening of connection? And this has been said over and over and over again. I didn't make this up, but into me see. You're able to see inside of me, right? I'm not putting up a facade. I'm showing you me. I'm revealing. I'm not concealing. And when two people are revealing themselves to each other, they form a bond. They form an attachment. They form love. Or they can feel really, really connected because we all are, we're all just doing our best to be enough (laughs) in this world. Mm -hmm. We're all doing our best to survive, to figure out a way to do more than survive and to thrive. I mean, 
this is the like we're all facing the same struggle in that way. And so when we share that with each other, there's a sense of union that happens as a result of that. There isn't like, oh, you're you and I'm me. And so there's that separateness. But instead, there's more of like a oneness that happens because we're getting raw with each other. And again, revealing things that like we all feel. You know, I tell people all the time because there are a lot of people when they're trying to uh, better their communication skills, they say, Jillian, I don't know what it is. Every time I'm about to talk and, and be vulnerable, I literally feel my throat close off. Like I cannot actually express the words. And I said, that's okay. Speak to what you feel in your body. Tell them like, you know, I'm overwhelmed right now. And all I know is that I feel like there's a 10 pound weight sitting on my chest or my belly hurts. Describe the sensations in your body because everyone can relate to that. They may not be able to relate to what's causing you overwhelm, but they can relate to how it feels in the body mm. and also really vulnerable. That's a great tool. You mentioned the abandonment wound. Do you yeah. think that the abandonment wound can ever be healed? Because there's a lot of approaches to healing, you know, the little girl or little boy, right? talking to little Amanda. But in your opinion, if you're working with someone who has an abandonment wound, how do you approach helping that person? Because this is one of the biggest wounds that so many people have. I would say that everyone has an abandonment wound. Hmm. That's my theory, that there's not a single person on the planet. It's, it's a spectrum. Not everyone is, you know, terrified of it all the time. But everyone has an abandonment wound because we are the only species that attaches as deeply as we do to a parent and to a parental figure for as long as we do. But if someone is really, really struggling with that, well, the first thing that I always address is their behavior because I want to know how that wound is sabotaging their relationships. Because if they're starting fights with the people that they're in a relationship with, or they're, you know, crossing another person's boundary, constantly texting, constantly needing reassurance, and then they keep getting abandoned, they keep actually having this self-fulfilled prophecy of people breaking up with them. I really want to get them to just have tools in the moment instead of doing that thing that they do that actually makes the person leave them. So that's, that's the first thing that's most important. And then I, depending on the person, I look into, you know, how are other areas of their lives going? Like what else do they have going on? Are they, are they happy with, with where their lives are? Are they, are they following dreams? Do they have dreams? What do they, those dreams look like? So in order to address that, you have to look at your life holistically and see where that sense of self, because to counteract extreme fear of abandonment, you have to strengthen your sense of self. Mm. And you have to understand yourself and you have to learn how to meet your needs. And you have to learn how you have to know to what your needs are in order yeah, to meet them. You have to figure out what your needs are, what's important to you, how to meet them, how to have just a stronger sense of confidence in yourself, in your decisions, all of that. We're always going to fear. No one wants the person that they love to leave. 
But the fear of abandonment, if it's getting in the way of you functioning at a high level in your relationship, it's always about looking into that person's sense of self. Have you seen severe abandonment wounds heal? Yeah, I used to have severe abandonment wounds. Do I fear sometimes abandonment? Do I sometimes get separation anxiety? Yeah, but it's like minuscule in comparison and it doesn't detract from my life. I can recover from that much more quickly. And it's like the way that I relate to myself. No one can actually abandon you. You're a grown up. And then, you know, just so much of it is having other sources of love outside of your romantic relationship. And this has become a big problem for people who have been in lockdown because if people are in partnership, they are 24-7 with their partner. That is That person is their sole love, sex, social interaction, community. Mm-hmm. That person's become everything. And so I think a lot yes. of people are really suffering from their focus being Absolutely. solely on their partner. Absolutely. Or solely on their children. Right. Right. That Absolutely. too. Absolutely. And I think that there are a lot of people who've gone into sort of pandemic relationships because it's the relationship that feels right and gets you through a hard time. But if there was any other circumstance, would you necessarily be with that person? Or are you staying with that person longer because you don't actually have the same social life (laughs) that you used to have? And so you're lonely. But pandemic and lockdown aside, something that people do and a lot of people who fear abandonment do too much is that they put all their resources and all their energy into the relationship instead of having various places that they go to to fill themselves up and what would what would those other places be friendships family work projects your whatever if you have a relationship with god or spirit that animals all of it travel. How important do you think a relationship in spirit is to the self-healing journey? I think that anyone who really struggles and suffers and reaches some sort of bottom in their life, whether it's struggling with mental illness, whether it's something actually happening in their lives, whether it's a divorce, whether it's sobriety, whether it's death, People find God and maybe it's not God in the religious sense, but they find something. Uh, Some kind of higher higher power. power. Yeah. And, And I think it's incredibly important. The people I know who've experienced the most pain, how they got out of that pain, they have some sort of connection to spirit. That's my experience too. Yeah. There was a time when I did a a photo project where I photographed and interviewed people in the last week of their lives. And the people who had any kind of peace about dying were the ones who had some kind of a higher power. And the ones who were had no acceptance, no peace, were very angry and really tormented with the people who didn't. And it was a very clear delineation that I saw. That's fascinating. Yeah, it was very, very clear what the two different camps there and that always mm -hmm, it always really stayed with me that so 
Yeah, for whatever that's worth. Yeah, it's worth a lot. And you asked about relationship. I think a relationship can be very healing. I mean, that's the, the relationships can either destroy us or they can put us back together in many ways. It can be the catalyst for us to grow. Yes. Famous parenting. I mean, I think that yeah. a lot of people get into a relationship because they want to, you know, be loved and end up um, feeling very disappointed because what they did not realize is that a relationship you go to, not just to get love, but to give love and to grow in your ability to receive and give love. And we have to transcend so many fears and we have to transcend our egos and we have to transcend so much crap. And people don't realize that. And that's a tragedy because, you know, a relationship is really where we go to grow. Well, as you said at the beginning of our conversation, rewriting the narrative of the expectation of what marriage is and ultimately yeah. a relationship is crucial because yeah. most people are going into intimate, committed relationships having an expectation that can never be met by either party. Yeah. And I think there's automatically a disappointment and a feeling of failure out the gate because the bar is set to some kind of fantasy fairy tale standard that never existed and will never exist. And ultimately, we do need to rewrite the narrative and be very honest about what the truth of the matter is, I agree with you that there is nothing like a relationship and or being a parent for me that has been a catalyst for me to heal, to change, to look at the things that were so painful that I would never look at if it wasn't for my relationship or to my kids or my husband. There's just no way I was wouldn't do it. So yes. <laughs> that's the gift of it. I get the gift at the end of it if I'm willing to do the work. But yes, it's how to exactly. do the work that people get really, really stuck and they aren't sure and they aren't clear. And that's another reason why I wanted to interview you because I think you've got such an amazing, grounded, truthful approach and your perspective is so needed. And I think people really need tools. They really, really need tools so yes. I'm excited to introduce you to, to my audience and my community and share the, the really incredible work that you're doing with them. Thank you. I appreciate that. You're so welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the conversation, please support the podcast by commenting, liking, and subscribing to wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And you can follow me on social media at Amanda Academy on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you want more of the conversation content and you want to delve just a little bit deeper into many of the subjects that we talk about on here, then I invite you to join myself and many other like-minded women in the newly launched The Conversation community. This is a private and safe space to have the hard conversations that make life just a little bit easier. You can join up at amandacademy.com. And I'll see you there.